Hello, welcome to Episode 2 of the BYU Animation Podcast. I'm Aaron Ludwig. We were recently privileged to be visited by storyboard artist, director, and producer Steve Hickner. Steve's career has spanned both feature and television animation, as he's worked on everything from storyboards on He-Man and Fat Albert to directing the Prince of Egypt and B-Movie. He gave two fantastic presentations during his visit, the first on story structure. This is part one of that presentation. So today I'm talking about story structure, and this came out, I've been to a lot of schools, and I thought, oh, if I wish I had gotten to these films earlier, because now, you know, you can fix them and you can make them better, but if I could give them some guidelines early before they start, that can help their work. And so what I want to talk about today is basically, these are not are not my principles. If you read uh, Sid Field's book, whatever that's called, uh, this is from that, or Robert McKee, who's another guy, or Michael Haig. This is kind of an amalgam of all them. And what I want to say is a, like an apology before all this, is that these are guidelines, they're not rules. You don't have to follow this to the letter. Because if that were true, if doing only these things made you a great writer, those three people would no longer be writing these books, screenplay structures. They'd be, you know, Tennessee Williams. So there's that ethereal thing that makes a great writer. I, I've always said, or at least, I don't know if i always said, but I, I say, I can help teach you the craft of animation and of writing. I cannot teach you the art. That thing that makes Picasso or Tennessee Williams or Mozart, I don't know what that is. Some people are lucky and they have it. They've been like um, bestowed with these incredible gifts. That can't be taught. That if you are lucky to win that lottery of life, you are uh, one of the fortunate few. But there are ways, no matter who you are, for uh, mere mortals such as myself to learn how to make films better, to take what you have and make them better. And so I want to start off deliberately with a movie that I assume everyone has seen, which is The Wizard of Oz. And I want to do that because you'll be familiar with the movie. So when I'm showing these things, you'll know it. Then I'll show some movies you may not recognize, but that's okay. You will have already... You're, you've, is everyone here seen Wizard of Oz, I'm assume? Is there, it's like a requirement to live in America. You must have grown up watching The Wizard of Oz. So what I want to talk about, and this is the shortest mouse uh, thing possible, they couldn't give you another two inches. Okay, this, this is like the length of a movie, and when I'm done with this, I'm going to show you how this relates to short films, which you're, you guys are making. Assuming that every movie is two hours, or a screenplay is 120 pages, which they aren't, but... Let's just assume that. There is a moment that happens about nine minutes into a movie, which is called the inciting incident. And that is the thing, it's exactly what it sounds like, that gets the movie going. Something happens to imbalance the world of the characters and gets the movie started. And that roughly happens about nine minutes or nine pages into a screenplay. These aren't absolutes, as I'm going to show you some films, and I'll have timelines of what they are. But as a guideline, that will help. So that's called the inciting incident. About 28 minutes or 28, watch the next movie, you, you see, whatever that is, for this. About 28 minutes, close to a half an hour, into the picture, 
you'll get plot point one. And what plot point one is, is this is something that happens to the main character that turns the movie in a new way. And I'm going to do this with Wizard of Oz once I've done, and you'll see. And then I'll do this with a couple of um, other movies. About 60 minutes, about halfway through the movie, is the midpoint. That's why it's called the midpoint. No. A smaller thing happens that turns the movie. Again, not as big as plot point one, but it's something that happens in the movie that changes the direction of the move, of the picture. Usually this happens to the main character, almost exclusively. And about 87 minutes into the movie, about half an hour from the end, is plot point two. And this is something that happens to the main character that turns the film in a new direction towards the resolution. So, copy down this timeline because I'm going to show some movies and then I'm going to show a short film and show you how the short film follows this exactly. The same, the same rules that are true of a two-hour movie are true in a smaller one. It's the same kinds of things. So now I'm going to go to um, The Wizard of Oz, and I'm going to show you the first clip. In the, in the musical, let me try it again, but in the musical world, you know, Howard Ashman on Little Mermaid, the other movies would talk about the I Want song, what they want. In the case of The Wizard of Oz, this is Over the Rainbow for Dorothy. Okay. minutes and 35 seconds into the Wizard of Oz. The, uh, the Margaret Hamilton character shows up. Her coming in is going to be the incident that's going to make Dorothy decide she's going to run away from home. And running away from home is what's going to get the whole ball rolling of her getting hit on the head and going to Oz. So, now we're going to go... This is about 19 minutes into the movie, so it's not 28. As I said, it's flexible in the movies where they are. And if you think of The Wizard of Oz and something's going to happen that's going to change the whole direction of the movie, you should probably be ahead of me on what that, what that thing is going to be. 
platform. I would still say it's um, landing in Oz, because that is a monumental shift that happens in the picture. But in in the character-wise, getting the ruby red slippers, because that's what creates the conflict with the uh, Wicked Witch of the West. So now we go, and now this is... uh, 58 minutes into the movie. So this is almost exactly at the midpoint of the movie. Although The Wizard of Oz is not... Uh, I forget how long... The running time is uh, 101 minutes. So it's not 120 minutes. So an hour into the movie, the midpoint, this happens. And this is a thing that's going to turn the movie in a new direction. Now I'll tell you what this is going to be. This is the moment where she gets to... She and the three fellow travelers, Scarecrow, Tim Man. Caroline Lyon get to Oz for the first time. Now, what we don't know yet is she's going to get to Oz, but she can't find the. She doesn't get to meet the wizard. She doesn't get what she wants because he's going to give her this task that he's got to get the. She's got to get the broom from the Wicked Witch. So, an hour into the movie, Dorothy. Oh, I did it again. I said I would learn, and I didn't. Okay gets jobs. would be lucky to work on a movie they're watching 70 years later. So, now we're going to go to plot point two. 
This is the thing that's going to happen at the end of the movie that's going to lead towards the resolution of the picture. I've got a plan how to get in, man. You've got a plan. And you're going to lead us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, you. I... I, I gotta Look there. at how the characters are now starting to show. The scarecrow's oh, getting ideas. I'll go in there for Dorothy. Which way? line is beginning God, to show a little curve. Tear them apart. I mean, I come out all right, but I'm not going in there. There's only one thing I want you to tell us to do. What's that? Talk me out of it. <laughs> is the group making it into the witch's castle. This is going to lead towards the resolution, which, as you know, water is going to be thrown on the Wicked Witch of the West, and we're going to kill her to be able to get the, the broom. So there's the Wizard of Oz timeline. Eight minutes is an exciting incident. The introduction of the Margaret Hamilton character is going to be uh, the, na- the mean neighbor and also the Wicked Witch. Nineteen minutes is plot point one, where Dorothy lands in Oz. 58 minutes, they arrive at the Emerald City for the first time to see the wizard, and are sent away. 80 minutes, they arrive at the witch's castle. 21 minutes later, you see that this is a little shorter. But it's not far from Buckwood 1. I would say this movie has a long act 2. I mean, yeah, the first half act 2. So this is act 1, this is act 2, and act 2 is usually twice as long as either act 1 or 3. And this is Act 3. In animation, you'll notice, a lot of times, Act 1 is long and Act 3 is short. But this is what makes the movie, in my opinion, Act 2. That's, a lot of people get good beginnings and they, they get an ending, but it's the meat of the movie, what happens in here, which really determines if it's a great picture or not. 
So now I'm going to show another picture. And I bet many, many of you have seen this one. It's, um, if you haven't, then you're in for a treat. In some ways, if you haven't, I'm going to ruin it for you. So that's kind of not a treat. But it's, uh, I have several here to choose from. But I'm going to do this one. This is one I usually do. It's uh, North by Northwest by Alfred Hitchcock. And so this is, and if you, this is the inciting incident. And it's with Cary Grant. He plays, uh, is it Roger Thornhill? Yeah. And Roger Thornhill. He plays Roger Thornhill. And he, the idea is he gets mistaken for this, this character who doesn't really exist. That the, the spy organization, CIA or whatever, has created. George, which is named George Kaplan. But George Kaplan is a Trojan. He doesn't exist. He's a Trojan horse. Or as Hitchcock would say, he's the MacGuffin. He's what it takes to get the movie going. Actually, the MacGuffin is the microfilm they're looking for. So this is the... I did it again. I didn't learn. <laughs> I forget. I get so caught up and excited because Hitchcock is one of my all-time favorite directors. I'll tell this quick story quickly because when Hitchcock died, I was grieving because I thought I never met Alfred Hitchcock and now I'll never get a chance. I didn't even try. I didn't even try to meet Alfred Hitchcock. And I was so sad. I said, that won't happen again. I love Orson Welles. I love Citizen Kane. I think it's the greatest movie ever made. And I had this copy of the Citizen Kane book, which Pauline Kael wrote. I said, I'm going to, it was a first edition. I said, I'm going to get Orson Welles to sign it. And I knew, I was laid off at the time. I wasn't working. So I had nothing but time, so I could have these thoughts. I knew that Orson Welles ate lunch every single day at this restaurant called Mama San. It was knowledge in Hollywood. And I said, I will go. And my friend said he wanted to come too. And I'll wait for him. And these were days before the Stakarazi, the paparazzi, which has ruined everything for this kind of thing, unfortunately. Is, um, so my friend and I went and waited out in front of the Mama San restaurant for Hitchcock, I mean, for Orson Welles to come. And, you know, we saw Anthony Perkins, and we saw all these famous celebrities come, but no Orson Welles. And we waited there, I think, three and a half hours, and he didn't come. But, as I said, I was let off. It wasn't working. So my friend and I, neither was my friend, so we said, we're going to come back tomorrow, because he's supposed to come every day. So, the next day we went and waited for Orson Welles out front with my book. We sat and waited. We waited all during lunch and he never came. And we were so disappointed. And we said, look, it's Tuesday. We've put in two days doing this. We can't give up now. We've put in two days. So we said, we'll go tomorrow. So we go Wednesday. And we're in front of Mama San and we wait and we see more celebrities. But Orson Welles never came. And we waited three days. And then... We said, well, this isn't going to happen. So a few years later, Orson Welles died. And they had a tribute to him, a memorial thing, at the Directors Guild of America. They had said they were going to do this. And so I went really, really early and to wait in line to get in. And it was a huge, long line of people. I must have waited four hours to get in. But I wanted to be there because I loved Orson Welles. I wanted to hear what all these people would say about him. So 
it finally came and it was so crowded they only let in two people from the public and I was so pleased because I got to go and so I'm there sitting with all these famous people and it was fantastic and then as one of the speakers to come up to talk about Orson Welles was the owner of Mama's Restaurant and he said as you all know Orson used to come here every day for lunch and he said I can still see him now coming in the back door (laughs) the back door I waited for three days he came in the back door so I never got to see Orson Welles so that was a major disappointment but now I know I was never I could have gone forever and I was never going to get to see him Anyway, so that was because I missed Hitchcock. So now here we are, North by Northwest, and remember, uh, Cary Grant's going to be mistaken for George Kaplan. And he's, they're playing, this is an in-joke, it's a most unusual day from the MGM musical. Look how many times they mention his name so you get it. Incident, and they very nicely uh, fixed this so that even if I have momentary lapse, it'll still play that sound. So, I want to stop for a moment and talk about conveniences because I'm always hearing this at work and at things. Oh, it's, that's a convenience that that happens in the story. That's a plot convenience. And the fact is, at least this is my own theory, so take it for whatever it's worth. But my own theory is you can be convenient. You can come up, you don't have to really have an excuse, you can have a convenience in a movie as long as it happens early in the picture. Nothing could be more convenient 
than the moment than the fact is that Cary Grant happens to raise his hand to get the attention of the uh, that guy at the moment they happen to page George Kaplan. That's an absolute story contrivance convenience of the worst kind. That's a great movie, right? And it doesn't. And nobody thinks anything of it because it happens early. And if you have a convenience happen early enough, it's okay. Many, many, many um, story, especially comedies, are set up on this kind of thing. If I just look through this, you know, my list here, and I see big, okay, it's a convenience that the uh, that boy becomes the Tom Hanks character, pulls that card, and gets that card at the moment he does in the movie. But it still happens. It's a convenience that everybody in, in the family and home alone goes off to the airport without forget, with forgetting the kid. But it's okay because it happens at the beginning of the movie and you give it that latitude. Now, if 80 minutes into the movie, at plot point three, you had something like what you just saw with Cary Grant, I think the audience would rebel a little bit because that feels lazy. You can do it at the beginning because, especially in a comedy or kind of thing, that's what gets the movie going. And it's all right. But that's my own theory. Take it for whatever it's worth. So now we're going to move to plot point one. And this happens 37 minutes into the movie. So this would actually be later than the 28 minutes that I said. But let's see how long is North by Northwest. North by Northwest is 135 minutes. So it's longer than the 120 minutes that I said. So that's probably why it has a longer... Act one, and besides that, this is a great movie. So, if you want to tell Hitchcock to cut 15 minutes, that's your business. <laughs> so, here's plot point one in. You, you can look at this and see all these movies you're not going to see. Well, you'll see some of them. That's what I said. Uh, when I, see, you, it's a good thing, Kelly, you did that because I would have done it again. You, you made me look good. So this is, as I said, 37 minutes in. Something's going to happen now that's going to change the course of the movie. Now, what I should say, what's happening, if you haven't seen the picture, those people take Cary Grant out to this Connecticut manor house where he meets all these people. Now, and the owner of the house is going to be this guy. But he doesn't know what he's talking about because it really wasn't. They staged this thing in his absence. Tom's in the moving raincoat. Right. Are we neighbors? A large red brick house with a curved tree-lined driveway. That's the one. Were you at home last night, Mr. Townsend? You mean in Glenpool? Yes. Oh, I've been staying in my apartment here in town for the last month. I always do when we're in session here. What about Mrs. Townsend? My wife has been dead for many years. Now, Mrs. Kaplan, what's this all about? Forgive me, but who are those people living in your house? What people? The house is completely closed up. Just the gardener and his wife living in the grounds. Now, Mr. Kaplan, suppose you tell me who you are and what you want. Do you know this man? Get back. 
photographer just happens to be there to get a picture of the thing. But that, that also is full of, you know, conveniences. And photography. They don't think anything of it because you're going with the movie. And it's just so wonderful. This, Cary Grant's completely framed, and they're setting up very well here that he can't go to the police because now they think he's a murderer. They are handcuffing him in the worst possible way. So that's plot point one. That gets the movie really going now because now it isn't just a story that he's involved with these people. He is a murderer. As far as the police think, this guy killed that guy at the U.N. And of course they have it happen at the U.N. in the most public of places. So that's the plot point that now shifts it for the Roger Thornhill character is he no longer can be just a bystander in the story. He has to be active. He has to solve this mystery because otherwise he's going to end up in jail. So now we jump forward to the halfway point, and this happens 109 minutes in, or 69 minutes, so it's a little bit, as I said, a little bit more, but, uh, you know, how long, I said it's uh, 135 minutes, so it's a little bit less than halfway through the movie. This happens, so this is the midpoint. And you'll notice that when I'll talk about set pieces later, you are talking about with this movie some of the most famous set pieces in the history of motion pictures. The UN sequence in uh, North by Northwest, the, you know, in the South Dakota, the Mount Rushmore sequence, which is coming up, and this one, the cornfield. Hot. Hot day. words. Are you supposed to be meeting someone here? Waiting for the bus. Doing a man. Oh. Some of them crop that's the part of the separation. A little long enough. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and your name isn't Catherine. Can't say it is the same. He comes right on time. That's funny.
one of the all-time great scores, too. Okay, so what happens there is, for the first time, they try to kill Cary Grant. So now it, the stakes are getting up. Now he can't just try to solve the, the crime because now they're trying to kill him. His life is in jeopardy, so the stakes have gone up another level. So now we're going to go to, what is this, one, 110, 110 minutes into the movie, so 25 minutes from the ending is plot point two. And at this point, we've had the Mount Rushmore sequence. Cary Grant has met this uh, woman, Eve Marie Saint, and he's kind of very fond of her, fall in love with her. And now he's going to find out that, like a lot of things in the movie, it's not what she th- She is not what he thought. Wait a minute. What didn't you tell me? Why didn't you? She's going off with Van Damme tonight on the plane. He's the villain. Van Damme. This is the She's going off with Van Damme. Well, that's why we went to such lengths to make her a fugitive from justice. So that Van Damme couldn't very well decline to take her along. But you should. I didn't tell you how valuable she can be to us over there. You lied to me. You said that after tonight, I needed your help. Well, you got it all right. Don't be angry. You think I'm going to let you go through with this dirty business? She has to. Nobody has to do anything. I don't like the games you play, Professor. War is hell, Mr. Thornell, even when it's a cold one. If you fellas can't lick the Van Dams of this world without asking girls like her to bed down with them and fly away with them and probably never come back, perhaps you ought to start learning how to lose a few cold wars. I'm afraid we're already doing that. Give me a, give me some bourbon, a pint or two. 
Can I join you? No, oh, I do. going to join you. You're going to get a quarter. See you in a few minutes. Yeah. about this clip. The, the second plot point here is um, let me see if I can go back. second plot point here is he's going to Van Damme's house. And this is going to turn it towards the resolution because he's going he's to meet James Mason. All the main characters are coming together for this final uh, sequence. But what I, what I want to stop and show is I want to show a couple of things that, that this movie illustrates. And I can't say this enough having seen uh, some clips of the films you're working on. So write this down and remember this. Your eye will always go to the greatest point of contrast in a scene. What, what I mean by that means that if you have a dark image and one light, your eye will go to the white object. If you have a dark object, if, I mean, if you have a light scene and it's dark, your eye will go to the dark. That's the biggest point of contrast. So that can happen in terms of the visual thing. It can also be if you have a lot of characters in a scene moving and one is still, the audience will look at the person who's not moving. If you have a lot of characters who aren't moving and one that is, your audience will look at the one that's moving. Let me run back here. And I wasn't planning to do this, but I'm going to stop and do this now, having seen some things. Watch what happens with Cary Grant when when uh, Leo G. Carroll, the TIA guy, says the line, um, inside of an hour, 
she'll be gone with Van Damme. Now, Cary Grant is, is moving, and he's getting dressed. Let's see if, if I've gone back far enough. It's time to announce she'll be gone. Hmm. Well, how's everything on Rapid City? Oh, see what Cary Grant did? Stopped. Immediately, that made that line more important that he just heard. He was moving, 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 moving. That was all Walla. But when he said, inside of an hour, she'll be gone, and he stopped, that said to the audience, that's an important bit of information, and I just got that. Pay attention. So, watch that when you're making your movies. The biggest point of contrast, the audience is going to look at it. Now, it can mean a as in the case of Cary Grant going up to that, that house, a white object, and that was no... Uh, Hitchcock liked, liked people dressed smartly. You wouldn't... I think in the world of the method actors, when Paul Newman came along later, when Hitchcock did Torn Curtains and Bruce Dern in the 70s, his movies never quite had that feeling. He became kind of an anachronism of his time, Hitchcock, as the movies became more real. And they went on location, and they they didn't dress up like Hollywood stars. Now, Hitchcock liked his heroes, you know, to to dress really smartly, and because he liked that. And so, he wants. And if you have Cary Grant, you want him to look good. Cary Grant was like the perfect Hitchcock leading man. So that's. Let me move now to the uh, timeline of that. And so on this, you get six minutes in the inciting incident. That's where he's... Uh, Roger Thornhill is mistaken for George Kaplan. 37 minutes out of 35, 135, is the uh, moment at the UN where he's mistaken for having murdered a man. Halfway through, they start to kill him. The stakes go up. And then he goes to the uh, villain's lair and 110 minutes, roughly 25 minutes from the end of the picture, and that leads it towards the resolution, the decision that I'm going to go after this girl. I care about her. This has been part one of Steve Hickner's presentation on story structure. Be sure and check out part two in the next episode of the BYU Animation Podcast.